Our scripture today is from Mark 15. I'll be reading verses 16 to 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole community of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skulls. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Okay, good morning. Every year, 750,000 people climb to the top of Pikes Peak. Most of you are probably familiar with Pikes Peak. It rises 14,115 feet. Uh, it's just west of Colorado Springs. It was on this summit in 1893 that looking out at the view, uh, Catherine Lee Bates penned the, the words that would eventually become America the Beautiful. And today, if you go out to, to Pikes Peak, there's a few different ways you can get up it and get this view. You can hop on the world's highest cog railroad you can take that railroad up to the top. You can get to the top and there's this place where you can get a fresh hot donut at 14,000 feet. You can also hop in a car and you can drive up to the top of Pikes Peak uh, on the Pikes Peak Highway, or you can walk up. You can use your own two legs. And many years ago, I was working as a summer camp counselor in Colorado for the summer. And I, I led a group of young boys up the top of Pikes Peak. We got up super early in the morning. You, when you climb these mountains, you want to start really early so you get off the summit by the time storms come in. So I got them up early. We started chugging water, make sure we were hydrated. And lots of miles later and physical exertion and 
some conjoling. I think there might've been a bribe on my part of a donut on top. I can't remember, but we, we got to the summit. And I remember this odd feeling of getting up to the top of the summit and, and, and kind of getting up there with these young boys. And there's all these crowds up there and they're eating their donuts and they're, they've been whisked up to the top by their mountain, uh, by their car or the, the railroad. And they've been kind of plopped onto the summit of Pikes Peak. And that's okay. I mean, so not everybody has the physical strength or the desire to climb this mountain or the time. But I just was very aware as I looked around that we had arrived in very different manners. We had the same view, but we had arrived in a very different manner. When you hike up a mountain with your own two legs, you, you know that mountain more intimately. You know the contours of the mountain. You know uh, you can look back and kind of see the route that you picked your way through to get to the top. You can see the hazards you may be avoided. And there's a few different ways you can arrive at the crucifixion account. You can arrive at the, the, the climax, the summit of Mark's gospel. Most years, we're just kind of plopped onto the crucifixion account during Lent, particularly Holy Week. Uh, we kind of do, we, we do the Holy Week, we, we eat our Easter meal, and we're down off the mountain. But I just want to recognize we have this unique experience this, this year of having spent a year trucking up to this point, to get to this point in the gospel, of slowly picking our way up through the mountain, through the story, up to this hill Golgotha. And we know, we know, I think, a little better the contours and the intricacies of Mark's gospel. We know this gospel more intimately. And I just want to invite you these next two weeks uh, as we sit up here on this hill in this view, to just take some time to stop and reflect, to just kind of meditate on, on where we are and how we got there. I think our family is going to go back. I challenged you at the beginning of this to, to, to uh, go through the whole gospel of Mark at one sitting, whether you listen to it or read it. And we're going to go back and do that again. I would I'd encourage you and see what is it where what is it like reading it now as opposed to a year ago. Also, I just I encourage you to just shut things off. Take some time, turn off March Madness, uh, shut the podcast off on your way to work or the radio. Like while you're exercising, turn off the music, turn off the news, and just kind of think and meditate on where we're at. There's so, I just am just so aware of how much information comes at us nowadays and just how much, and all these things I mentioned are things I enjoy, but how much of information we focus our attention on that's ultimately inconsequential, that's it's really going to fade away, if not in an hour, in a day, or more. And what we do is we risk missing meditating on what's actually consequential and what's actually eternal. So one of the so I just want to encourage you: just take some time. Rather, just pick one of those activities, and rather than do that, just take some time to kind of meditate on on this crucifixion and what we're going to be talking about. One of the surprising things that I notice when you when you get to this summit of Mark's gospel. Is, is how really unsentimental Mark is in a lot of ways when he describes the crucifixion. There's really not that many details about the actual crucifixion. We actually get you know, one line in some ways in verse 24, and they crucified him. So I think most of us, um, maybe not all of us, most of us, I mentioned this last week, most of us think about the physical pain of, of crucifixion, and there's no getting around the fact that crucifixion was, was a ghastly way to die. The word excruciating is actually derived from the Latin word excruciatus, 
which means out of the cross. So we get the word excruciating from crucifixion. And the intent of crucifixion as designed by the Romans was to uh, inflict as much pain on the criminal as possible. So they would be nailed or they would sometimes be tied up to this cross and they would actually, they did not damage the vital organs or there wasn't excessive bleeding. And the reason was that meant death came slowly. Uh, even at sometimes night would come, uh, wild animals would come in. If the person was hung not too high off the ground, the animals would begin to, to attack the person. And after prolonged treatment, Jesus actually was, was much shorter than normal. Sometimes it would go on for days. Death would finally come by this painful process of asphyxiation. So the muscles that are in the body that are used to breathe would become increasingly fatigued to where they would uh, die of asphyxiation. Horrible, no doubt. And nearly, so nearly everyone that's reading this account or listening to this account of Mark's gospel, they're, they're probably familiar with these details. And that's probably why Mark, one of the reasons why Mark doesn't take a huge amount of time to sketch all the horrors out. But I think what we can miss, and I mentioned this last week, is that crucifixion is not only designed to maximize physical pain, it's designed to maximize shame. So this was a public affair. The, the Romans would crucify people along the busiest roads and with, so that as many people as possible would observe what's happening. They wanted to, to create a spectacle about, of, of this. They wanted the, to create as many opportunities for savage ridicule, as we'll see in this passage uh, to have a possibility of happening. So you and I, I, again, I think, as I was reflecting this week, I think we live in, in a culture, in some ways, we're more comfortable than we've ever been. Interestingly, we're more obsessed with avoiding uh, phys uh, physical discomfort than, than probably ever before, too. We, our, our culture encourages us, and we do this, we try to build our lives around avoiding physical discomfort and pain. Like that's just what we're conditioned to do and encouraged to do. And so I think naturally when we get to the crucifixion account and we think about what I just described you, we wince and understandably like we, it should send shutters down our spine if we actually allow it to do it. I think what we miss though is for a lot of first century Jews, what really would have made them wince. I'm sure the physical pain did too. What would have made the shutters go down their spine was this just, utter humiliation, this utter, utter degradation that's happening here at Jesus' death. This was not, in, in, in their understanding, the way a, a righteous person, a person that had a special relationship with God was supposed to, 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 to happen, to die, let alone God's Messiah. And this makes more sense why, why when Paul begins to write his letters 25 years later, he's just going to, in the first the letter of 1 Corinthians, he just kind of lays it all out there like, this idea of, of, a, of a crucified Messiah, this idea of a cross of a shame, it's scandalous. He's like, I get it. It looks foolish to Gentiles. It looks, it's a stumbling block to Jews. I get that. And this, this savage ridicule that's, that's making this a stumbling block begins early in the palace when Jesus is surrounded by this company of soldiers. These, they put on this purple robe. They put on this crown. They, they, call out to him, hail king of the Jews. They're kind of mockingly imitating a, a greeting that would be reserved for Caesar. And we read again and again, they strike him and his head and spit on him. So it's just incredibly degrading scene here. And I think it unfortunately speaks to the perversity that 
certain people in history and now take in witnessing the agony of others. I mean, that's really what we're saying. They're, they're, they're having this perverse pleasure in the agony that's happening to Jesus. And, it, you know, humans will do unspeakably cruel things to each other, like just for the thrill of it. And I think, I think I'm so familiar with this scene, maybe you are too, that, that that just wasn't, that wasn't like hitting me in the gut. Like the savage and the cruelty of that scene that's was not really just kind of bouncing off me. And as I was working on this, I thought of Abu Ghraib. If you remember Abu Ghraib, Abu Ghraib was that was the prison in Iraq in 2004. And after some time, pictures began to be released of the, the torture and the abuse and the humiliation that took place in that prison during the Iraq war. Uh, I thought, I was like, I can't even show these pictures as I was looking, there's, you know, there's men on, on dog leashes, there, there's men in, forced to be naked in human pyramids. There's, it's the most degrading and unspeakable uh, humiliation you can imagine. And it, it really, as I reflect on that, I was literally just feeling almost sick and it was making me shudder. And that's, you know, that's, that's what's happening here. This is really, really bad. I mean, this is, this is a, this, a cheap thrill at the expense of someone, and it should make us sick. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is it, it happens in these extreme ways and also happens in mundane ways, too. I heard a pastor named Scott Sauls uh, once say, this stuck with me. He said, gossip is pornography of the mouth. It's kind of an interesting quote. Gossip is pornography of the mouth. And what he said is, he said, gossip is like porn. It's, it, it seeks a cheap thrill at someone else's expense with zero commitment to them. And I was, when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, I think that's true. Like none of us are, none of us are immune to seeking a cheap thrill at the expense of another. We do this in various different ways of finding this kind of perverse pleasure in the misfortune of someone else. The distance from the palace where this is all happening to the site of the crucifixion was probably not that long. It was probably less than a thousand feet. Uh, as Melody talked about, thank you, Melody, for sharing that. This works well. Like Jesus is, uh, Jesus is going to be forced to carry the cross beam. So, uh, you know, probably like this wouldn't have had a top. There would have been a cross beam that would have fit into a slot there, and that's what the person would have been forced to carry. Uh, and then, then it would have been put on the vertical beam. But apparently Jesus is so exhausted, so weakened by the beating that he's experienced at the hand of the sh shoulders that he can't do it. So there's this guy passing by, Simon of Cyrene, place in North Africa. And he seems to be just kind of minding his own business. We'll return to Simon. I think this is really interesting. But, but Simon's then forced to carry the cross beam for Jesus. They then get to the, the site of the crucifixion. And we read that Jesus offered wine mixed with myrrh. This would have been a, a primitive narcotic that would have uh, deadened the pain of somewhat of the crucifixion victim. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to tell who's offering it. It sounds a little bit like the Roman soldiers, but it doesn't sound like the Roman soldiers are going to beat Jesus and whip him and do all this torture and then offer him this narcotic. It, these women show up later in the other accounts in the Gospels. We read that there are women close to Jesus. It's a good chance it's the women who are actually offering him uh, this wine. But Jesus refuses it. If we remember at the Last Supper, he talks about, he makes his vow not to drink wine until his reception in the kingdom of God. It might be that. It might be that, that Jesus, he wants to remain conscious to the bitter end. Uh, so in a sense, Jesus is going to, he's, he's taking this cup and he's going to drink it right down to the dregs. 
Verse 24, and they crucified him. There's that short summary. Dividing up clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Few few things about the clothes here. Think about think about these clothes. We've because we've been trekking through Mark's gospel, we've seen these Jesus clothes show up a couple times. And every time they show up, they're they're emblems of great power. So for example, uh, in our story of Jairus' daughter and the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, she she moves towards Jesus and she touches his garments. She actually touches the hem of one of his garments and she's healed. So there's power in these garments. But then also at the transfiguration up on the mountain, uh, we saw these garments of Jesus become dazzling white. So now these garments uh, that have otherwise been emblems of, of some of power now are stripped off Jesus. And this means, this, this, this kind of hit me this week, this means very likely Jesus was crucified naked. So usually when we see depictions of Jesus' crucifixion, he's wearing a loincloth that was allowed sometimes for Jewish people. But it sounds like from the account, very likely the normal practice was crucifixion for the person being crucified to be naked. And I, as I thought about that, so there's so many shameful things happening here. That was the one that made me wince. Like that was the one, like if I'm going to meditate on the cross and I'm going to watch everything, that was the one that made me want to turn away. Like I did not want that picture in my mind. It was so, so shameful, so degrading that it made me want to turn away. And I just, I point that out because we really need to see this whole scene is that way. Like it's not hitting us either because of familiarity or because of culture, but this whole scene is just, you just want to turn your head away. But, but one more thing about the clothes here. This is also likely a reference to Psalm 22. We're going to see, if you happen to watch that video before the service started, there's all these references to Psalm 22 uh, to connect with this passage. And one of them is, is about the clothes. So I'll just read uh, this psalm from David. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast their lots for my garment. So, so again, there's numerous references in the crucifixion account in Mark's gospel to Psalm 22. Sometimes I, I, these cross-reference references, I think it helps to think about them as kind of hyperlinks. I mean, you kind of, we we're familiar with hyperlinks. It's like as if you hit those passages, you'd be linked back to another part of Scripture. So there's this interesting way that Scripture uh, has this communication with itself. But this is important because I think Mark is trying to say, is, look, as bad as this looks, as, as humiliating and shocking and shameful as this is, God is not being thrown for a loop here. I think that's important for us to recognize. We're going to have to hold this, hold this together. Uh, Jesus is crucified by uh, two rebels, one on his left, one on his right. And if you remember, I talked about this again, go, this helps because we've been, we've been there. We've seen this on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to this place, James and John tell Jesus, Hey, we want to sit. We want to be on your left and your right and your glory. That's what we want. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, you had, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. So now fast forward, here we are. Purple robe, crown of thorns. Now there's a title, King of Jews above his head. This is Jesus' moment of glory. This, I talked about last week. This is his enthronement as king, okay? Guess what? There's someone on his left, and there's someone on his right. But it's not James and John, is it? Right? 
at Jesus' moment of glory, there are two people, one on his left and one on his right, but it's not James and John. They are long gone. Another reminder that Jesus is utterly abandoned here by his disciples. He's utterly alone on the cross here. And the insults just keep coming at Jesus. They mean, just, it's just relentless. Uh, people walk by and wag their heads. This was a gesture of contempt. Also another reference to Psalm 22. Uh, got, then you've got the chief priests and the teachers of law. They take their shots at Jesus. And finally, at the end of this passage that Ellen read, uh, you've got the, the two rebels, uh, you know, using this little precious breath that they have as they're being crucified to insult Jesus. Now, another gospel, we get some other different words from one of them, but in Mark's gospel, no, no words to offer any kind of consolation from the two rebels. Like this is relentless. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming at Jesus. And one of those taunts is he saved others, but he can't save himself. So think about that. Why, why can't the Savior save himself? And it's interesting because we've seen, as we've trekked through Mark's gospel, we have, in fact, seen Jesus do lots of acts of salvation. He, as I mentioned, he saved that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He saved her from this physical infirmity that she had. He, he then saved a little girl from death, a little 12-year-old girl. He saved a man who had been tortured and been living in the caves, been bound up with chains. He liberated him uh, from a legion of demons. He saved a man whose friends were so uh, wanted to get him to healing. Not only did Jesus save him from his physical infirmity, but he, he talks about his sins. He releases him from his sins. And then, and then Jesus saves his disciples from a raging storm. That's, there's other examples too. Jesus has literally been saving others throughout this gospel. He should be able to save himself, right? And as we look, as we sit on the summit and we look at Jesus like broken, he's feeble, exhausted, excruciating pain, abandoned, scorned, mocked, humiliated. I think we're pushed again to ask this question, what, what, what is going on here? What is happening here in this moment? Like, why doesn't Jesus come down from the cross? Why does he do those acts for all those other people, but not from himself? And I think most of us, maybe not all, most of us are familiar enough with the story to, to kind of sense the irony here, right? Like what we profess is that the only way Jesus can save others is if he in fact does not save himself. That, that this death that's happening is not just like another death, that this something is being, something is happening here, something is being accomplished here. And, and what we say is that we believe that, that at this death, what is accomplished is the forgiveness of human sin and also the reconciliation, the restoration of our relationship with God. But again, how? Like, how is this, how is this act, this such savage act on this hill, how is that doing that? And, um, since the very beginning, Christians and followers of Jesus have been reflecting on this question. So we join a long company of the best theological minds, and then there's the rest of us who reflect on this question of why did Jesus have to die, okay? What, what did Jesus' death accomplish? And I wanna just lay out, I'm not gonna be able to do a thorough, maybe we can come back another time and do this if you wanna to talk to me, I'm glad to, but we typically, there's three main understandings or theories of why Jesus had to die. And I'll just briefly talk about them here. 
The first one's probably the one you're most familiar with, that one that's, if you know very little about Christianity or Jesus, it comes up in our, in our culture. Uh, it's it often referred to as substitutionary atonement. And this, this understanding begins with the understanding that, 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 um, that sin is breaking God's law. And the penalty for breaking God's law is death. And so, like, for example, in Romans, we see a lot of this spelled out. The wages of sin is death. Paul speaks about in Romans. And Paul also writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you so think about this is a predicament, if, according to this. Um, all have sinned. The wages of sin are death. And then the other predicament is that we, we believe that we have no way to repay this. Like, if we've gotten ourselves in a bind through sin, we have no way to repay it. So, so what are we going to do? How is this debt going to be paid? Well, substitutionary atonement says that the way that debt is paid is that Jesus actually comes in and takes our place. That Jesus, uh, through his suffering and his death on the cross, he pays that debt. Again, uh, it, Paul writes in Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So on the cross, what is being accomplished again? Christ is taking the place of, of us sinners. He's substituting his life for others. He's taking the death and the punishment that we deserve so that we can be set free. And that's all very abstract. I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with that. I think what helps actually me is to actually see that in the narrative. And we saw that last week, right? I told you like Barabbas is guilty. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas walks by to go to freedom. Jesus goes to the cross, right? So we get this very kind of very concrete example of what that looks like for one person. They've swapped places. And some of you, some of you are probably saying like, yeah, of course, of course, that's what the meaning of Jesus' death is. And some of you are like, yeah, that bothers me. Okay. Some of you are like that. I know that that theory of atonement, that theory of why Jesus had to die and that bothered me because it sounds, what some people said, it sounds like divine child abuse to me. Like, why would the father subject a son to this savage uh, and shameful crucifixion? But let me just point out a couple things to you. It's important to remember that this is where it's important for us as Christians to realize we profess that Jesus is both human. We've seen a very human portrayal of Jesus and Mark and also divine. So, so again, this is worked out over many, many hundreds of years, but we believe they're the same substance that it's hard to get our minds around. But so this is important because we recognize, okay, God is the one who accepts this sacrifice, this payment, but he also is the one who provides the sacrifice. Let me say that again. Like if, if we hold the Trinity, Trinity together, it's not happening outside each other. God is both providing the sacrifice and God is accepting the sacrifice. In other words, God is taking the punishment God's self. So that would be what I'd say to one. But I'd also say if that's your only understanding of the reason why Jesus had, had to die, it can be a little bit narrow. Because the Bible doesn't just speak about that as the reason why Jesus died. The Bible actually speaks in lots of images and metaphors and descriptions of why Jesus had to die. So let's go on to the next one. There's, a, there's another one that actually was tended to be more common very early on after Christian and Christianity than later on came back. It's called Christus Victor. Some of you might've heard this term. So again, we're, we're standing on Golgotha. We're asking the question, why is this happening? What is this accomplishing? 
And, and what Christus Victor would say, or often known as the dramatic theory, it would say it would it would put rather than put the emphasis on Jesus' death as a payment for sin, Christus Victor or Christ the Victor sees the death and resurrection of Jesus as a victory over sin and evil. So, so through the sufferings of Jesus, through the cross, through resurrection, Jesus is conquering the evil powers. He's conquering Satan. That holds humans captive, okay? So it's like this great drama that's being played out. And, and at this moment, Jesus is conquering the evil forces. And so rather than seeing this as a, like a legal or business transaction, Christus Victor sees uh, the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as a rescue, Christ the victor conquers Satan and evil and death and death and therefore liberates us as humans. It really takes seriously this idea that we as humans are enslaved to the powers of evil, but that Christ is victorious over that. Christ conquers that and Christ frees us. And we get this, we get this, we, again, it helps to be anchored. This is all very abstract, but remember we're anchoring this in the gospel of Mark. So think back in chapter three, and Jesus has been accused of uh, being possessed by Beelzebub, and he responds by saying, that makes no sense, okay? You're saying I'm possessed by a demon, but how is Satan going to drive out Satan? Like that, if a kingdom is divided, it's not going to stand. No, first what you do is you tie up the strong man, you bind up the strong man, and then you can plunder the house. A really strange passage, right? But looking back, I think this makes more sense. Jesus goes out in the wilderness, he binds up Satan, and now he can get to work plundering Satan's domain, right? He, 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 can, he, be, he can begin to liberate what Satan had held hostage. And that's exactly what he does. As Jesus moves out, he begins to liberate these people from physical infirmities, but also other things from their sins, from uh, other psychological things. He frees them from these things that hold them into bondage. Um. So I, I was trying to think of a couple images. Again, this is all very abstract, but the images, these aren't going to be perfect, but there's two images that came to my mind as I thought about Christus Victor. Uh, one of them is like, you know, in movies where maybe, yeah, somebody runs out and they take all the fire, all the gunfire or whatever, all the, all the ammunition so that other people can, can get away, right? They, they, they draw the fire on themselves. And in many ways, what, what's happening on the cross is that Jesus is drawing all the fire, all that evil has to throw at him, he's pulling it in, right? And it looks like a spectacle. We're seeing like a, probably a microcosm of what's really happening here. So he's, all this evil is coming at him. And it looks like Jesus is thoroughly defeated on the cross. It looks like a spectacle in which the evil powers conquered Jesus. But actually, this is what, so when we look back through resurrection, as Paul does, we see that, oh, actually, Jesus was making a spectacle of them. He writes this in Colossians. I love this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing on the cross. Again, it looks like at the, all the shame, everything that's being hurled at Jesus, it looks like he's being thoroughly, he's being crushed. And he is. He's being, but it looks like he's being thoroughly defeated. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus was actually making a spectacle of them. He was actually disarming them of their power. And, and because Jesus has done that through the death and in particular through the resurrection, now Jesus has the power to liberate us from evil and Satan. So the other image that popped to my mind was 
there's a lot of camping and mountain illustrations. I want to apologize that like I've got Colorado on the, on the brain here. So hopefully I won't give too many more, but here, another camping one. If you, if you ever camped, like there's a, a water purifier, you go out, you got to drink water, but the water can make you sick depending on where it is. And sometimes, sometimes it can be just really nasty water. So you drop this hose into the water and you start to pump. Okay. And you can, it's amazing. You can take some nasty water, some brackish water, and uh, you could, that could really harm you and you pump and you pump and it goes through and that, that pump pulls in the water. It pulls it in from all over. And what comes out is something pure, something that actually gives life. And I was just thinking about this image of Jesus on the cross. He's pulling in all this evil. He's pulling in all this sin. He's pulling in all this darkness and it's going to crush him. But what's going to come out is life-giving. It's going to be pure because he's going to conquer it. Let me give you one more. The third, again, I'm throwing a lot at you, but the third kind of understanding Christians have, have said to answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? What did this death accomplish? And that's called the moral influence theory. And the way this was says is that what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's showing us a grand display of God's love for us. He's showing us just how far God will go uh, for us and his love for us. And, and by showing us that through Jesus on the cross, that then motivates us to change our lives. Because we see, man, we, we see how far God is willing to go for us. He's willing to die on a cross. And therefore, we're given a model and we're given motivation to then go love others and to, to change our lives so that we're focusing on our lives on God rather than continuing in sin. Okay, so, so model uh, and motivation are kind of big things for the moral influence theory. And we see that in Mark 2. Jesus' death on the cross is a model of the huge, the dramatic love that God has for us. And it, that should motivate us to change our lives. And as I was, there's lots of, lots of ways we could go with this, but I've been reflecting as I've been meditating on, on Jesus' death these last few weeks. I think what's really moved me is just Jesus' willingness to trust the Father in all this. Going back to Gethsemane and before, uh, every step of the way in fear, in psychological anguish at Gethsemane, in pain on the cross, in the confusion of how this is all working out, right to the very end, okay, when he's being taunted to come off the cross, Jesus chooses to trust the Father, okay? He chooses that the Father is going to vindicate him. I'm just, I'm so moved by this because I think most of us know what it's like to move through life and not understand how things are working out, right? Things in life don't always make sense. We have a model of Jesus in, through Jesus that tells us we're going to trust in God. Not to say it's easy. That's again, we see Jesus. He's in anguish a lot of times. And yet to the very end, he trusts in the Father. So two things here to kind of wrap up. Here we are on the summit, Golgotha, shadow of the cross, reflecting on Jesus' death. I just want you, as you hopefully meditate, to think about these understandings of, of how we try to understand why Jesus died and what we draw from, from the scriptures, but also to recognize there's a mystery here, okay? We are humans. What is happening right now in Golgotha is so far beyond, I think, our, what we can get our minds around, right? So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try our best to understand the meaning of the death, but we're also going to recognize there's just some mystery here, right? We're not going to understand everything that's happening right now. 
So that's one thing. And also we're gonna, we're gonna really work to not have a really narrow view of Jesus' death, right? If you notice, I think most of these theories, if you're listening to me, you'd probably say, yeah, I agree with that. It's, the Bible uses lots of different ways to describe Jesus' death. I think it's important for us to not just use one way and also just not to throw out one of the ways because maybe we don't like something out of them. I think that we need all this to give us a full picture of the meaning of Jesus' death. I want to throw one more. I, again, I throw a lot of abstract theology at you here, but I want to, I want to end on a, on a more concrete story that I think is so fascinating with Simon of Cyrene. So I think this is a good, we don't, the other thing is that we're not going to fully understand everything that's happening at the cross. And then we're going to say, we get it. We understand Jesus' death. All right, we can start to follow Jesus. Okay. Because I think Simon gives us a different model. Simon's, walk, Simon's minding his own business. Simon did not want to be part of this story. He did not want to be the drunk. Simon, it looks like Simon has been out at his field and he's coming back to Jerusalem and he is all of a sudden caught up in this cosmic drama that here we are 2,000 years later in Northeast Ohio talking about, okay? Why does Mark tell, like, why does Mark give us Simon's name? Mark's the shortest gospel. Something's pretty, he economizes his words in some ways and yet in this most crucial part of the gospel, he's going to take these precious words, this precious space in the story to tell us about this guy who, who carried the cross beam for Jesus. Like, why not just say some guy carried the cross and then move on? No, he tells us it's Simon of Cyrene. And even stranger, he, he's like, I'm going to tell you his son's names, Rufus and Alexander. So we, so we don't know this for sure. I'm, I'm we're doing some speculation here, but I think this is worth considering. Remember, Mark, I've tried to point this out. Mark is a brilliant writer, okay? Mark just doesn't like tell stories and throw little random things in there that have no meaning, okay? If Mark is including this, we need to be asking why is Mark including both Simon's names and the names of his son? Well, the tradition is that Simon eventually becomes a follower of Jesus, okay? That's interesting. But it's also interesting because... Uh, these two names of the sons, they probably were given because the readers of this gospel knew who Rufus and Alexander were. And in fact, if you look at the letter of the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, he'll actually greet a Rufus. We don't know if it's the same one, but he'll greet a Rufus in Rome. Very well could be the same Rufus. Okay, so so that's I think that's a note to like you fathers or mothers like I was thinking, man, your kids are watching. Like, it looks like Simon has this moment where there's a change that we'll talk about, but that change not only affects Simon, that affects his two sons, whatever it is. There's ripple effects to that, okay? I just want to say, fathers, trust me, I know this. Your sons and your daughters are watching you, okay? But secondly, let's go back to Simon. Simon, again, Simon's doing his own thing, minding his own business. All of a sudden, he's caught up in the story. Like he's now literally doing what Jesus said disciples were going to have to do. He's carrying a cross and he's following Jesus. Okay. He's, he's literally got a cross on him, a cross beam, and he's walking to Golgotha. And at that moment, there's a change for Simon. Simon has now entered this story. Before Simon was just an observer, Simon was just minding his own business. Simon just wanted to go from field to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden he's caught up in this drama. He's caught up in the action. 
and that changes his life, and that changes his kid's life. The invitation this season is not for us to just stare at this cross. I want you to do that. I want you to meditate it. That's part of it. It's also an invitation. The invitation is to enter into this story, like Simon. Some of you who are listening right now, you might just be minding your own business as you approach Easter. You might just be cruising along. You might be doing your own thing. You might be coming back from work, coming back from the field. Like you're not even, when you see what's happening, the spectacle that's happening, you're pretty sure you don't want anything to do with that. You definitely don't want to walk to that crucifixion site. And yet something beckons you. Something grabs hold of you. Something almost beyond you takes hold of you. And all of a sudden you're turned around. You were headed one direction and now you're headed with Jesus to the cross. And I invite you this Easter season, if you are that, all of us, to let this story grab you, to let it turn you around, to move from participant, I'm sorry, to move from observer. We're not supposed to be observers. We are participants in the story. We are called to follow along the way. And I invite you to be like Simon, to let this turn your life around and put you on that way. Let's pray. God, as we stand uh, at the foot of the cross, in the shadow of the cross, after this long, long journey, Lord, we are overwhelmed uh, with emotions if we allow ourselves. We are overwhelmed with the physical pain and also just the shame of the cross, Lord. We're also overwhelmed with just the great love that you had, that you would sacrifice yourself for us, that you would give us a model for what it means to love, that you took on the forces of evil and made a spectacle of them. And therefore, as we move forward, as we move along the way, as we turn our lives around from where we were going and put them on the way of Jesus, we realize that in the end, you will vindicate us because you have conquered evil, you've conquered sin, you've even conquered death. What a great hope, Lord. I just ask that we would set aside so many things that vie for our attention that in the end will not matter and put our minds on what actually matters this Lenten season and this uh, Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.